The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. So speaking of making room, um, the Lord just keeps speaking this phrase to to me and deep resounding in my heart, make room, make room, make room. Not just make room for more people, which we are doing. Yes, Lord, we are doing it. Three services. You see what we're doing? We're making room. We're building buildings. We're, we're giving generously. We're doing what we can to make sure that we can facilitate the mission and ministry of Christ Church. But not only physically room, but God wants us to make room in our minds, in our, in our thinking, in our emotional center, in our relationships, in our calendar, so that we might encounter him and continue to be transformed in our relationship with Jesus. It's very easy for us, and if you're like me, when things are going well, or even in crisis mode, you can put your nose to the grindstone, fill up the calendar, make your commitments, work as hard as you can, try to keep everything going. Anybody anybody do this? And it can become very hard to slow down, to, to be off work and at the dinner table, to go to bed when you should, Uh, to wake up refreshed and not immediately aware of the 10 things that didn't get done yesterday. And so the Holy Spirit's been speaking to us as a church and asking us to slow down and to put things aside and to create space where we can have an interaction with God that is life-giving and life-transforming. And so as we do this, I've been coming to the Lord with open hands every week. And when it, come, when it comes to sermons, I'm a planner and I like to look at the year and God puts these things in my heart and I plan them all out. But he's been telling me just to slow down, stop, and just make room to, to walk with me and to listen. And so even this week, I'm asking God, what do you wanna say? What do you wanna speak? And uh, the sermon title this morning comes directly out of that. And it is Room at the Table. Somebody say Room at the Table. Room at at the table. I grew up in a large family with a small house. And uh, we had uh, furniture that was in the house and we moved in. And there was one of those little oval-shaped tables that was in the kitchen, had no dining room. Anybody grow up with a kitchen table? Yeah, the kitchen table. We don't have a table in our kitchen. I still call the dining room table the kitchen table. (laughs) And so we had this little table and uh, there's seven of us kids and two parents and with five chairs. And we had one of those igloo coolers off the back of a work truck and one of us sat on that. And uh, there was this folding chair that somebody pulled up and some kind of wooden crate and a baby chair. And so we would all kind of get around this table. And my mom, she has a beautiful hospitable spirit and she would invite people to dinner. She would invite people to live in our house. We had people sleeping on the couch, all kinds of stuff. It was an adventure. But one year for Thanksgiving, uh, she invited everybody who she found out didn't have an invite. So anybody that, was, that she talked to and she would say, what are you doing for Thanksgiving this year? And they, they would say, oh, nothing. I'm just going to be at home eating a hunger man in front of the television. No, absolutely not. So she invited all these people. Most of the time, people don't come when you invite them, this, those sorts of things. Well, there was this one year where literally everyone she invited showed up. And so we're having Thanksgiving around our crowded little table. And, you know, somebody knocks at the door and our door wasn't ever closed or locked. I could give you my dad's address. I guarantee you could go there right now and open the door. It's not locked. And, uh, and, so, and, so, and so people, so people, people would come to the door and it's a beautiful November day, cool. And people are coming in and we're just pulling up more things to sit on and crowding into this little space. And then we overflowed into the living room and moved the table across the couch and everybody's finding TV trays. And just people kept coming and coming and coming. And finally she was like, all right, um, Jesse, go to the backyard and of course, my, this is throwing my dad under the bus a little bit. He's a bit of a junk collector. Um, so we started taking stuff that we, cinder blocks, saw horses, old doors, pieces of plywood, blue tarps. And we just created this enormous um, junkyard table in our front yard. 
And there was like 25 of us out there in the yard having Thanksgiving. And it wasn't pretty. This was not in any uh, Joanna Gaines magazines, no Magnolia Journal. Nobody showed up to take a picture of this. Um, But it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful evening seeing the effect on people's faces of having someone make room for them. And one of the high callings of being a part of a growing faith family is to have a disposition to always make room at the table. Uh, We're going to build a pretty building, but nobody cares that it's pretty. Um, We're going to put a lot of seats in there, but it's not about the number of seats. It's about the person in each individual chair. Do you know it? And so God is doing something in our hearts. And that's got to overflow, not just from building plans and service times. It's got to overflow into a disposition of heart that not only are we people who make room at the table for others, but that we are constantly aware that God has made room at the table for us. And I can't think of a better place to turn than Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to skim through chapter 14 and chapter 15 with the limited amount of time that we have. Uh, And so I'm not going to put these up on the screen and I won't read the entire chapter, but I've been studying Luke's gospel in my personal reading and I'm just overwhelmed by the heart of God that Luke captured as he did his investigative journalism to interview people and to put together an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do in his ministry. And so when I come to Luke 14, I just become overwhelmed by Jesus in his heart and it hits me in such a powerful way. And in chapter 14, Jesus is coming against the judgmental religious lost. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Pharisees, who oftentimes, if you grew up in church, are known to be the bad guys in all the pictures. They have all the fancy robes and the ugly faces. They're always, they're always the ones who are wagging their finger at Jesus, and they're the bad guys. But if you were alive in the first century, the Pharisees would have been the best of the best. They would have been the religious leaders. They would have been the ones on TBN with the biggest churches and with the largest platforms who write the best-selling books that show up in the Christian bookstores. These were the Pharisees. And yet, with all of their piety, with all their commitment to the scriptures, they did not understand the heart of God. Now, you can't fault them because all of humanity, including Israel, was broken and without the spirit of God to enlighten them. And so while the, the, the Israelites had the revelation of God, they didn't experience the transformation that can only come when Jesus came. Do you know that? And so the expectation when Jesus comes on the scene is that you have kind of two groups of lost people, the, the kind of dirty lost and the clean lost. You have the rebellious lost and the religious lost. And so Jesus here is, is identifying and exposing the religious lost And he's showing that he is here to seek and to save both. Do you understand? And so it's not us and them. It's not a good guys and bad guys. Sometimes people look at Luke's gospel and they think, oh, religious people are terrible. And and the fringe people who are ostracized and oppressed, they're the real valuable people. No, Jesus came for everyone. Can I get an amen? And And so Luke compiles this gospel in chapter 14. We're gathered around a table. There's room at the table. Room is made for one special guest. In fact, two, and the first of those is Jesus. Look at Luke 14, verses one to six. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. We'll stink either. Verse two. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. This is the second guest. 
not a guy you'd expect to be at the table. This is a guy who has some kind of edema, swollen extremities, and more than likely is a sufferer of severe chronic heart disease, and so his body cannot process the fluid, and that collects. In the ancient Near East, this was obviously not understood scientifically, and there was a religious connotation between dropsy, various kinds of diseases that result in this, and sin, particularly sexual immorality. And so this, in the Pharisee's mind, is a way that God outs people for their private sin. And so this guy would have been judged. He would not have been a typical invitee to a Pharisee's dinner party. And he was brought only for the purpose of testing Jesus because this is on the Sabbath day. Verse three, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Notice they hadn't said anything. They'd only done something. So Jesus walks into a dinner party and Jesus goes to every dinner party he's ever invited to. One of my favorite things about Jesus, if you invite him to dinner, he always says yes. He never, uh, he never, you ever have somebody invite you to dinner and you go, oh, well, what are you having? <laughs> or they say, hey, come to my birthday party. And you're like, oh, who else have you invited? You know, like these are the, Jesus doesn't ever do that. If he gets an invite, he doesn't even hit the Facebook, maybe. We'll see, you'll see how I feel day of. You know, it's been hard, it's been a rough week. Nope, yes, he'll be there. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath or not. Of course, this is the crux of their trap for Jesus. Verse four, but they remained silent. They're like, oh, we're not giving you this one, Jesus. You're all on your own, pal. And then I love just the quickness of this miracle. Then Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Jesus did the two most merciful things he could. He healed the man's body and then he let him go home. (laughs) And then he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Something happens in in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Luke records that Jesus told a parable and then follows up with a multi-layered triplet. Three different things. Look at verse seven. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor and he, talk, he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by the, get, by the host. And he who invited both of you will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin, begin with shame to take the lowest place. So you try to aim high for yourself and you end up being shamed publicly. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And here's the principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus is acknowledging the reality that among these Pharisees, the religious loss, there is an impulse to gain. They are essentially consumers. They are saying, what is in this for me? This is the upper echelon. These are the socialites who are looking to capitalize on every opportunity to be around the right person for the right reasons and to benefit so that they end up receiving the most amount of public honor. And Jesus said, that is not the way it's supposed to work. And then he turns to his host, which is very taboo, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. You know that that's what was going through their mind. He's going, who do I want to invite me to their party? So I'm gonna invite them to my party and then see if they show up. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. What? And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. Do you see how Jesus is, is identifying this consumerism mentality, this what's in it for me, religious lostness. And he's saying, actually, there's something much bigger at play here than just your uh, social connections and your dinner parties and what you get invited to that makes you feel good about you. In fact, there's the resurrection of the just. There's this big eternal scene that's gonna take place and it ought to filter out the way we see everything. He said in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table, I love this. I love the reality of the gospels and I love this moment. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is an Enneagram nine peacemaker. Can't handle the tension Jesus has created. Let's change the subject, shall we? Let's talk about good things. Verse 16, but Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And the time for the banquet came and he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. There was no texting, emails, evites. So in the ancient Near East, if you were the honored guest of a party, you would receive an invitation that did not include the date. You would say, this event is happening and we want the honor of your presence being there at the wedding or the graduation or the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah, whatever it's gonna be. We want you to be there and to be a part of it. And you'd be honored to be invited. And then you would await with one day's notice that the party has come and the time has come. And so now the servant has come to say, you invited guests, now it's time. And so in this story, Jesus tells all of these people who were invited begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Now this is a junk answer, is it not? What self-respecting Jewish man is going to buy a piece of property without looking at it first? (laughs) And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. This is like a fleet of semi-trucks. And I'm going to go examine them. What? This is stupid. This is not true. Nobody would do this. You would have got the Carfax. You would know what you're buying. (laughs) Please have me excused. Now, I think everyone would have been laughing like you are, at least the people in the back of the room who weren't close to the host. (laughs) We know it's a joke because in verse 20, it says, another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) I want to be there, but she said no. (laughs) Classic. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, listen, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant returned and said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who have been invited shall taste my banquet. And then there is a judgment. Now think about this for a second. Two things happen. One, go get all of the undesirables from around town, the people nearby who other people would look at and see them as cursed and unable to do anything for them in return. And he says, I want my table full. And when all those people have come in and there's still room, he sends them to the highways and the hedges. You guys know what this is, right? Highways and the hedges. This is people who are hitchhiking at the interstate. Miami, can I get a ride? the highways, and the people who are sleeping in the bushes, the hedges. Their shelter is that, those hedges that separate property from property. 
Now, I live in Daytona Beach on the beach side, a few blocks from Main Street, and so I, can, I see people in the hedges on a regular basis, okay? So I'm walking down at daybreak to go surfing, and I oh, don't want to step on you. Walk by quietly so as not to wake you from your slumber. Jesus is saying he is going out to everyone. Do you think people in those positions would need to be compelled to attend a rich man's banquet? To hear the good news that a place for them has been created and they are wanted in a place of celebration and honor? No. And yet the religious lost, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were after something completely different than Jesus was after. Do you see that? And so here we get a glimpse into the heart of God to make room for everyone and to bring everyone in. And, and so Jesus is saying, listen, this guy with dropsy, I don't stand in judgment over him. And I'm certainly not gonna keep your silly rules and not heal him because of what day it is. And in fact, I'm gonna show mercy on him and restore him because I want him. But Jesus is also saying, you have been invited and you don't wanna be a part of it. You know, this judgment Jesus makes in verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Sounds like he's saying you may not come in any longer, but is that gonna be a problem? None of them wanna be there in the first place. And so Jesus begins to expose this religious, consumeristic, what's in it for me mentality. Jesus turns up the heat in verses 25 to 35 where he talks about the cost of discipleship. He says, listen, unless you're gonna Unless you're going to hate your mother and father, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. And he tells people to count the cost. He says in verse 33, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. You got to stop worrying about getting ahead for you. And you have to recognize that everything you have stands against you. And in order for you to follow Jesus, you have to be all in towards him. And that's a lot easier if you live in a bush, isn't it? There's a place for you when you see yourself as having nothing. And it's a lot harder when you have respect and dignity and honor and wealth to come down to listen to what Jesus is saying. And so at the end of chapter 14, there's this aggressive opposition to consumerism and this invitation to everyone, but an honesty from Jesus about what is going to cost them to follow. And look at the effect in chapter 15 and verse one, if you're scrolling or turning, look at chapter 15 and verse one. With all of this said, with all that's gonna cost you, This is the effect, verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. You gotta love it. You gotta love Jesus. Sticking it to the man and inviting the outcasts. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, when you see that grumbled in the scriptures, these guys are never saying this to Jesus. This is one of the things that happens with the religious elite, with those religious lost people, is when they have something to grumble about, they just find a willing ear and whisper about it on the side. Have you ever experienced that? Oh, I wouldn't go to that church if I were you. I've heard things. You want to hear what I've heard? I would not read that person's book. They're a blankism. They believe in her. Whatever it is, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. People love to talk. And the more religious the spirit, the more chatty the gossip becomes. And so they grumble among themselves. It doesn't stop Jesus. <laughs> so he told them this parable. And again, we get the second set of three parables. Now, these ones are very familiar too, and I'll sum them up. Jesus tells them this parable, and it's a set of three. It's the parable of the lost sheep, 
the lost coin and the lost son. If you've been in church any length of time, you know Luke chapter 15 probably all too well. Jesus says, what one of you who has a hundred sheep and loses one will not leave the 99 to go after the one and search for him until he finds him and bring him home and then say to his friends, rejoice with me for my sheep has been found. Such, such, I tell you in verse seven, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he gives the parable of the lost coin. What woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so we get the heart of God to seek after that which is valuable, that which belongs to him, that which is irreplaceable, sentimental, and personally valuable. And this is the heart of God. And we get this triplet so that we get a compare and contrast. Any of you guys remember English one when you were in college? Did you take English one? And they teach you to compare and contrast. And so if you see repetition, that's for emphasis. And then you see those three things are the same. What do we have? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Oh, I see the author is doing something here, Right? And then this third story is longer than the first two. And it tells an incredible story that's too amazing to be true, too outlandish to be true, of course, that this young, privileged, younger brother of a wealthy father says to his father, essentially, I want what's coming to me. I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. I wanna go do what I wanna do. I hate this family. I hate this life. I don't wanna live here. Give me what's mine so I can leave. Now, any self-respecting Jewish man in the first century would give that kid a backhand and tell him to take a hike, right? which is what you just felt like in your heart. Don't look at me like that. You're like, you little punk, how dare you, right? Every human impulse. But instead, in Jesus' story, the father divides his property and gives the son his entire inheritance, presumably in cash. And he goes off to squander it in lascivious living, doing who knows what with who knows who. And then in the middle of his point when his money's run out, a great famine hits the land and he becomes destitute. And having been a foreigner and because his, his uh, lavish spending has made him no friends, he ends up uh, working for a pig farmer and making such little money that he actually envies what the pigs are eating. And so here we get a picture of the rebellious lost. And it's in that moment of lostness, whether you're living by the highway or in a hedge or under the criticism and judgments of others for your perceived calamity as being part of your sin nature, here is a person aware of their brokenness and thinks to themselves, even the servants in my father's house have it better than me. Let me just go back to him and plead to just not be a son, but to be a servant. That would be a better life than the one I have carved out for myself. And so with enough remorse, regret, humility, he scrapes his way back down the road only to find his father looking and longing for the day of his return. And what what really surprises everyone hearing this for the first time is that this proud Jewish wealthy man would throw off restraint and run to his son and meet him in the road and to wrap his arms around him and to kiss his stinking dirty face. And as this boy tries to muster up this speech that he's practiced on the road, the father will have none of it and instead immediately reestablishes him by putting shoes on his feet and a robe on his back and a ring on his finger. This is my son and I gladly welcome him home. And in Luke 15, Jesus points out to these pharisaical religious lost and to the tax collectors and sinners 
the missionary heart of God for all lost and broken people. There is nobody outside of the scope of God's love. Do you know it? And what's different about this parable from the previous two, each of them contains something that is lost. But in the first two parables, we find someone diligently seeking. And in the third parable, the person you would expect to go after this lost son, his older brother, instead, upon hearing of the rejoicing going on, ask one of the servants, why are people partying in there? What's going on? And he says, good news. Your, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf and we are celebrating his return. And he becomes angry. So not only is he not searching and seeking for that which is precious to the father, no, now he stands in judgment and anger because of, in his religious state, he's saying, I deserve that and I'm not getting it. And how would you give that to that person? Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is setting up in this parable? Now, the whole thing concludes in verses 25 to 32. And the father, the same father who went to meet his rebellious lost son on the road and embraced him and welcomed him home, leaves the party to entreat this son. His father came out, verse 28, and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, this is the height of disrespect. Look, look here. Doesn't even acknowledge him, no title of respect. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And the story ends right there with the father and the angry older brother outside of the, outside of the feast. And there is no resolve about what happens. We don't know if the brother comes in. We don't know if the brother stays out. We don't, know if, we don't know what happens. Why? Because Jesus tells these stories to the religious lost who are all concerned about their power, prestige, and what they deserve and people getting what they deserve. And they don't understand the heart of God that he wants there to be room at the table for everyone. The rebellious lost and the religious lost alike. Do you see it? And so the question hangs out there for those standing in judgment over others to go, you should have, and I do. You never, and I always. I deserve, and you get. I'm angry because of how you're receiving. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, this is not the heart of God. You are missing the point. You need what I'm giving them just as much as they do. And in fact, your prestige and power and wealth and prominence stands against you. And so he lets this story just hang out there. And I wonder if it settles in. Certainly the First century hearers would have thought, oh, we have three lost things, but we only have two people seeking. And the person in this story who should be seeking, in fact, is standing outside and unwilling even to join in the celebration. Now, Luke is doing this on purpose. He's composed his gospel to not only identify who Jesus is and what Jesus says and what this kingdom of heaven looks like, 
but to show the world that there actually is a son, an older brother who loves all of God's lost children, who is willing to leave his place of power and prestige in pursuit of those who are lost, both rebellious and religious alike, and his name is Jesus. Look at Luke 19.10. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Speaking of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who's repented and joined Jesus, since he also is a son of Abraham, he's a son of our father, I'm a brother to him. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We have an older brother who is on mission looking for us. If you're here this morning and you keep looking up to see if the roof is gonna cave in on you, you're looking around to see where are the fire extinguishers and the smoke alarms. Because when this place bursts into flames because you dared enter it, we wanna make sure everybody can escape safely. Some of you though, some of us in this room, we can fall prey to that religious spirit as well. To feel like I deserve what's coming to me. And how dare you act this way? And you can come when you meet my criteria. And this is not the heart of God. Brothers and sisters, we as the body of Christ have been commissioned to be the hands and feet of the son of man, the son of God, his name is Jesus, who is eagerly right now going out into the highways and byways and compelling people to come and giving the good news that there is room at God's table for them. This is part of the reason why it's so important that we keep making sure there's room in here. Otherwise, we end up with a sign out front of our church that says, no vacancy. We could build a little barn, a little nativity scene. You can watch the service in here, right? That would be kind of Luke 2.7. There's no room inside. Sorry, you didn't get here early enough. If you'll just follow me. The reality is, is that if we're gonna keep this missionary heart of God, then we're gonna keep making room the way God makes room. Amen? We're gonna keep doing what it takes for us. It's not easy, guys. It is not easy. Part of what we're committed to is funding ministry and making space and bringing an environment where people can connect. It's, it's part of the reason we structure our staff the way we do, having such a small staff. It's part of the reason we mobilize people because we believe that God will be honored and the loss will be reached when you are in the community doing what you have called to do. It's the reason we have so many volunteers on Sunday mornings because we know that God has wired each person to make a, a valuable contribution, that when people interact with you, they're gonna encounter something of the nature and character of God that they won't with us. And so we are all in this together and so we got to make room. We got to be people who say, there's room at the table for you. There's room at the table for you. I don't care how, how pharisaical and religious and judgy you are, God loves you. I don't care how dirty and smelly and hopeless you are, God loves you. And he has made a way where there is no way. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. They're going to lead us in a song and I just want to talk to you just one-on-one. -on -one. I know it's not really one-on-one, -on -one. a couple hundred to one, but I want to talk to you, not y'all. I want to talk to you. I assume that many of us are here this morning because we have a story that puts us in the place of the prodigal son, the runaway and the rebel. I assume that at some point in your life, you reached rock bottom. And by the grace of God, discovered the rock that's at the bottom. I trust that there's some people here this morning who were dangling by the end of your pathetic rope when you finally decided to cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. I think all of us can identify with the prodigal son. And we had an encounter, maybe in a church service, not unlike this one, maybe in our room on our knees with our Bible open, maybe on 
the end of a phone with an encouraging friend, we had an encounter where we perceived God through Jesus as being that son of man who came to seek and save that which is lost. We heard the good news about Jesus and how it, how it brings about our forgiveness and gives us the gift of eternal life. We, we had that moment and encounter and we were overwhelmed by the Father's heart and we turned to him in repentance and faith to find warm arms and a robe of righteousness and a ring of adoption and shoes on our feet, amen? But I also know that that religious spirit is alive and well. And the longer you try to live a life of doing the right thing, the right way, for the right reasons, it's very easy for us to begin to see ourselves as something better than the person across from us. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I never went that far. They're too far gone now. And that religious spirit has got to come to an end. It's gonna cost us something. It's gonna, it's gonna be hard for us. It's gonna be, there's gonna be more people needing to volunteer to make three services. There's gonna be more dollars given so that we can build this building and to do it in a reasonable and responsible way. There's gonna be opportunities for you to step out of the things that give you value as a person, that make you feel good about you in order to give your life away to somebody that can do nothing for you in return. Those are gonna cost you something. In Luke 14, Jesus is very clear about the cost of discipleship. He says, I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And so we've gotta keep before us constantly the reality and the truth that we did not deserve a seat at the table but God made room for us. We were not on the in crowd and could do nothing to promote the popularity of our Lord and Savior Jesus, but it's in his forgiveness and redemption and cleansing and mercy that we've been welcomed. Do you understand? And so let us, as we continue to make room, Look for the places in our hearts where that consumer-driven, what's in it for me, I'm here for these reasons. If I can't gain from it, I don't want to do it. And recognize that that is not where God operates. God operates and the power of God is visible when we come to him with open hands. All that I have is yours. Think back to the moment when all that you had was trouble on wheels. Think back to the moment when all you had was a sentence. All you had was debt. All you had was addiction. All you had was failed relationships. Think back to the moment when you had your prodigal moment and came running. And all the things that God has done between now and then, those are all a gift from him and meant to be used for his purpose. And may we be the people who have arms open wide to the rebellious loss and the religious loss. But wait, may we be the people who along with Jesus say, there is room at our table and you are welcomed to dine with us. Amen. God, I thank you that your heart has never changed. Your heart for humanity, your heart for Israel, your heart for the nations, and your heart for us. Lord, we, we without you are lost and we can't even tell. And yet you have come into the world to seek and save that which is lost. God, thank you for the overwhelming sense of value that we have as we encounter Jesus. Thank you that you always rescue us from our mess. Thank you that you always set our feet on high places. And I pray, God, that you would continue to cultivate within us 
a sense of humility. Lord, as we live lives that draw attention to you and to your grace and mercy, and as we continue to make sacrifices so that every table, every place at the table is filled. God, give us eyes to see the world as you see it. And let us operate with this missionary heart of God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We're gonna stand and sing. The team's gonna lead us in the last song in our prayer. And altar ministers are here. And if you have any need of prayer or if you wanna respond to something God's doing in your heart, now is a great time to do that during this song in the cover of darkness. You can have your moment, have your conversation, receive something that God wants to give you and offer something that he wants you to give up. Amen? Let's sing.